And Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for wrapping yourself in flesh and coming down to the earth so that we would have the hope of redemption through your shed blood. We do thank you, Father, for loving us Father, how can we give you anything less than our own? So today, Father, we ask that you will help us, Father, that you will transform our lives and our minds so that we look more like your son. We pray that today, Father, that you will help us to have a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of anticipation, not just at a certain time during the season, but all year long. Father, our every waking moment will be one of thanksgiving, that our lives will be lives of thanksgiving, that our speech will speak thanksgiving to you and what you've done for us as we proclaim your truth, as we witness to those around us, as the lives in which we lead represent you. We want to say thank you. You're so worthy of our thanks. You're so worthy of our praise. You're so worthy of our adoration. And we're grateful. So Father, speak to us through your preached word. Help us, Father, to understand you more, to grow closer to you, Father. So that at the end of the day, Father, when it's the close to our lives, when we see you face to face, we can hear you say, well done, that good, faithful servant. Thank you, Father. And all of God's people said, Amen. You brought your Bibles this morning. I challenge you to grab uh, Revelation chapter 20, and we'll be there this morning. And after you found Revelation 20, if you'll just put a placeholder in John chapter 3, we're going to end our time uh, in John 3 this morning. Uh, I haven't had a privilege to meet a lot of you guys in the third service. I've been in the first and second service uh, a couple times, and we frequent the uh, second service with our family. Uh, these are my kids in the front row, so if they get out of line, you can just pop them on the head, and they'll help us because uh, the stink eye from up here is kind of weird. But uh, the reality is we, uh, we've been here since the beginning of the summer. Um, Ron has had some uh, needed vacation this week, and so he and his family are out. And we'll be here next Sunday, and I know you uh, will miss him, and he misses you. Uh, my wife and I, we've been in ministry for about 18 years, working with university-age students. And uh, God has called us to uh, the Fort Worth area uh, for the next few years. I'm doing a Ph.D. in theology, and uh, prayerfully, as the Lord leads, we'll be coming on staff at Rock Point. And uh, this is a chance for us to kind of... Uh, fit our lives in with Rock Point's vision and church, and we're excited about what God's doing in the days to come with uh, all the, the ministry, the needs, all of the vision of uh, receiving and equipping and sending. Uh, prayerfully, God will uh, allow us to uh, be a part of all that God does at Rock Point in the days to come. But um, glad to be here, and I pray this morning, uh, difficult, difficult message. Uh, second service, was a, it, was, it was fine, but I just felt constrained because there's so much to cover. And uh, this morning in the third service, because you don't know me all that well just yet, you're not really kind of used to my style of teaching and preaching yet, and about halfway through the sermon, you don't get it. Uh, you have to listen fast. I pray that you put on your spiritual seatbelts, because we're going to dive in and go deep and hit it. And uh, I pray that it will be spiritually encouraging for you to be confronted with the Word of God, with, with a real difficult topic. It's a very, very challenging topic this morning. Um, I'm not sure where all of you guys are from. I'm from East Tennessee. And then uh, we spent uh, this past Thanksgiving in uh, Arkansas. Hopefully, and probably you had a restful Thanksgiving. It was good. But in, uh, in Thanksgiving, uh, the day after, Black Friday, 
It's a different experience for a lot of folks. You have a kind of the tension of, do I sleep in and enjoy my kind of, you know, leftover turkey, turkey fest and, and kind of let all the chaos happen around me? Or do you kind of get up and just kind of get in the middle of it? And I'm one of those guys that really don't need a lot of things. I, I'm not really needful to go out and buy stuff, but I love to get up early in the morning just to get in the midst, just to kind of mix it up with old ladies, the young ladies, and the, you know, people just kind of going crazy for their gifts, you know, this kind of frenzy around Black Friday. And uh, we spent uh, Thursday night of this past week at 10 o'clock Walmart. Of course, in northwest Arkansas, is Walmart World up there. It's kind of remote home, home office is based, and they have a nice big Walmart. And so at 10 o'clock, they opened. They have all the electronics. Now, I took our son because our son was, you know, he's up at 10 o'clock. He's never done uh, Black Friday before. And I wanted him to see what chaos and crazy really looks like. And at 10 o'clock, I kid you not, there were thousands of people in Walmart, literally thousands, had to break all kinds of fire codes. And in this Walmart, uh, everyone was kind of geared toward the electronics. You know, the, the video games were half off. And my son's 12, and so he's like, yeah, let's do this. And so we didn't need any of them. We were just in it for the fight. We were just in it for the experience. And so we, are, we, you know, they say 10 o'clock and go, and there's policemen there. Again, you know, it's crazy. And I, it is a mass chaos. And so we are fighting and spitting and doing elbows and loving people in Jesus and just trying to they get in there to get stuff. And we put half of it back because we didn't need any of it anyway. We just wanted the experience. And, and it, as a thought, as we kind of worked our way out of the Walmart lines, there's baskets and baskets of junk I mean, people have been fighting and clawing and, and waiting in line for hours just to put in their little their little kingdom basket stuff that no one really wants. I mean, there's stuff that we people we buy and gives gifts that no one really needs or wants. And I, I wonder if you've ever been like that. Have you ever got a gift that you're like, what do I do with this gift? It's too bad to re-gift, and I don't know. I can't. I can't. If the person who gave it to me, I don't want to keep it. It's kind of useless. Have you ever gotten a gift? You're like. What do I do with it? And I was thinking about that. I researched four of the most popular gifts this Christmas. You're like, what do you do with these gifts? For example, here's one. The bright feet light up slippers. For $24.99, you have slippers that you can see when you walk. You know, so you don't stub your toe anymore. But I think it's interesting. They're camouflaged like you'd be able to find them anyway, right? So... The bright fleet light up slippers. That's, that's, and here's another one too. For, for the guy who has everything, how about a bacon ornament, right? I mean, who do you give this ornament to, right? I mean, you, you, what, what are you saying about the person receiving the ornament? They love bacon that much. You just gotta have this bacon ornament. Here, here's a third one, the toilet mug. I, 1290, it's yours for 1299. I, you know, is it a work piece kind of deal? I don't get it. I, you know, but like, what do you do with that gift, right? And the last one is, is true, the hander pants. Underpants for hands. Uh, this is real. Google it. Yeah, this is a great YouTube killer. If you just want to spend some time on YouTube, watch the infomercial for hand pants. But I promise you, it's real. And you can have it for Christmas. You too could be the owner for $15.99. Now, I think about those gifts. What do you do with those gifts? I mean, really? These are legit kind of things that come to you. And I, I just want to ask you to think about, man, sometimes in life we get handed things we don't know what to do with. And I, I think... Similarly, the topic this morning of Revelation 20, very soberly, is kind of one of those ideas. This morning, Ron's asked us to to, to look at Revelation chapter 20, and we have to ask the question, what do we do with hell? See, the topic of hell in evangelical Christianity in 2011 is still very unpopular. It's very unsettling. 
It's discouraging. It's not preached a lot from the pulpit. It's certainly not talked a lot in circles of people in Bible study. We're not spending a 15-week end-up study on the topic of hell. It's just it's not done. And interesting, in the last really decade, there's been whole denominations who are trying to be dismissive about the very concept of hell. George Barna, who does phenomenal research among Christians, among evangelical Christians, and those who are not believers, and trying to compare stats and fads among Christians, he, he surveyed a huge group of adults who, who marked the, the box that they were evangelical Christians and they were born again. That means they believe the Bible, they believe in God, they believe the Word of God, and so they would call themselves born-again evangelical Christians. And the question was asked, do you believe that hell is real and that Satan is real? And 48% of evangelical Christians who mark their born-again, Bible-believing, church-going Christians, 48% said they don't believe that hell is real, that the devil is real. Only symbolic. That shocked me to read that. The Anglican Church in, 2000, uh, in 1995, the Anglican General Synod, the whole denomination, a Protestant denomination in England, declared that hell no longer exists. Can you imagine a whole denomination, Anglicanism? They stated that hell is only a state of non-being. It is no longer a place, especially not a place of eternal torment. It's hard to fathom that our theology, what we say we believe about God, really has action, has feet of who we are. And we declare something like hell does not exist or hell is not needful. What does it say about your true belief in the Word of God and the Bible? Christian universalism is, is more popular in 2011 than it has been the last 20, 200 years. If you remember Love Wins, Rob Bell's book uh, up in Michigan, famous pastor, 10,000 member church, he's uh, declaring that love wins, that heaven, uh, hell, uh, you know, it's kind of this, this place on earth, or kind of our own personal reality, it's kind of a hellish existence. But is there, is there really a place called hell? I don't know. Is, is it Maybe everyone kind of ends up in heaven kind of deal. Universalism as a concept. The Christian universalists claim, as a, as, a, as a tenet of their theology, we believe in the ultimate triumph of divine mercy and grace. We believe that no being ever created will be condemned or allowed to suffer forever. That is a strong statement right in the face of biblical theology. The Episcopal Church in 2009 took a similar tenet. And I know we have a lot of Episcopal folks in our church as well who come from different denominations. Interesting, the, the bishop, uh, the presiding bishop over the Episcopal Church in the United States of America, Catherine Jeffords Scorsi, she says and declares the overarching connection in all these evangelical crises have to do with the great Western heresy. And what is this heresy? That we can be saved as individuals and that any of us alone can be in a real and right relationship with God. Can you imagine that statement coming from a huge two or three million member denomination in the United States of America who claim to be Christian? That it's heresy that we could claim to have a right relationship with God and that salvation exists. But it goes hand in hand, right? If hell does not exist, there's no need for salvation to exist. There's no need for a right relationship and justification to exist. Because in the end, God's love, right? Love wins. 
We're all going to end up in the same place and, and be it Buddhists or be it, be it Hindus or be it atheists. We're all going to kind of eventually end up in this loving fold of God. But the question is, what does the Bible say about this issue? What does the Word of God declare as truth? And, and though the Word of God declares it, maybe a more important question is, does the Word of God inform your understanding of hell and end times and what God's perfect ultimate plan for the world is? Well, this morning our task is to, to dive into the 20th chapter of Revelation. It's not an easy task. At the end of the service, you're probably not going to walk out super charged up and super encouraged. There's a lot of, a lot of sermons that kind of, kind of lend that way, but this is very sobering. And so this morning, as we kind of maybe move from a, a preaching set to a teaching set, I want to unpack some, some deeper ideas that are found right here in Revelation 20 that we could dive in together. So if you would, I'm reading from the New American Standard. The, the scriptures will be on the screen as well if you don't have the scripture, but let's, let's read these 15, cha- uh, 15 verses in, in chapter 20 of Revelation. The Bible says, and John's speaking here, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss, the great bottomless void, and a great chain was in his hand. And he, this angel, laid hold of the dragon, who is the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for 1,000 years. And this angel threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that Satan would no longer deceive the nations until 1,000 years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Pause, change of scene. Then, John says, Then I saw the thrones in heaven, and I saw them that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been killed, beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hand. These came to life, and they reigned with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. Verse 5, And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, a second death has no power. But these, the resurrected ones, will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Verse 7, change of scenery, back to earth. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth. Think about the four points of a compass. Gog and Magog, and to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, on the new earth. And the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10. Change the scenery. And then John says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is where the beast and the false prophet already are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Change the scenery. Verse 11. Then, John says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and whose, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. What a beautiful scene. And I saw all the dead, those 
from the beginning of the earth, the world's existence, all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God. And books were opened. Notice the plural. And then another book was opened. This is a book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 13. And the ocean, the sea, gave up its dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave them up the dead which were in them. And they were all judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. In verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Revelation 20. (laughs) Woo! Thanksgiving. Happy thoughts, right? This is kind of scary stuff. A little bit sobering here. This is not, again, the the easy feel type of sermon, right? The kind of sermon you send to your mother-in-law. Here, listen to this. Did I say that out loud? That's not on the tape. Surely not. But here's the reality, right? Think about it. Here's here's Revelation 20 unpacked as a scene. Now, I want want to approach the text, letting you understand where I'm coming from. As a a theologian, I believe that we can approach this this Scripture, and, and as many folks have done before, take this and interpret it only allegorically or symbolically. But I understand that as we look at Revelation, all 22 chapters, we have a mix of historical narrative. That means that God is unfolding history, but it's called future history. Here is God, through the person of Jesus Christ, unveiling, opening the curtain. That's what the apocalypse means, to unveil the person of Jesus Christ. And here is John, the recipient. And he's been given the charge to write down what he sees. So that you and I in 2011 can be confronted with the Word of God and understand between now and the time that we go to heaven, this Jesus Christ is incredible. This Jesus Christ is Lord and Redeemer and Restorer of all things. And we see Jesus for who He really is in His natural setting in heaven. So the revelation ought to encourage us. revelation ought to draw us to to, to love Him more and to be be more drawn into worship of the living God because we see Christ and we're we're blown away with His holiness and His glorious nature and His victory and His restoration and the redemption of all the earth. And like all the peoples of the face of the earth, we throw ourselves down face first into the dirt. We plant ourselves there to worship a holy and living God. And as we see revelation for who God is and the person of Jesus Christ, the visible of the invisible God, we realize that we're sinful and we're broken and we are living in a decaying and corrupted earth and world. And that we need Jesus to touch us, to restore us to life. So revelation is an incredibly encouraging read, but it's also very sobering because Jesus Christ declares in history, in future history, this is how the world will unfold and, and the, the world of the plan of God will be unveiled this way. And Christ declares that there will be a season of tribulation on the earth. I believe that's future, yet to come. Preterists believe it happened in the first century. Amillennialists, those who believe in a true literal thousand year reign, would read this kind of symbolically or allegorically. I choose as a, as a dispensational premillennialist someone who believes that all of this is yet to come. I believe in the, the literal plain reading of the text, that I approach it without having to, 
make it say what I believe it says or try to find some extra spiritual uh, reality in this, but listen to what God has already unfolded for us and says, this is going to happen. I'm taking God at His word. If He says Jesus Christ is coming back, the Bible says that I believe He's coming back. If he says for six times in Revelation 20, there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign where Christ sets up a theocracy on the face of the earth for His glory, I believe it's going to happen. And I believe in Revelation 20, we see a picture of historical narrative. So in chapter 19, we see what happens to the church of God as they're worshiping Jesus around the throne. And in chapter 20, we see now the fate of those who are confronted with Christ. So I approach the next 15 verses as a historical narrative of future history. And though where symbolism is, we believe there's symbolism in apocalyptic literature, in Daniel, in Zephaniah, in Amos, in Joel, Obadiah, we see it in Revelation that symbols, as John is trying to unpack and write what he sees, he's using figurative language and real language based on his ability to translate with his limited knowledge what he sees in the future. So there is symbolic language, absolutely. But I believe that every one of those symbols that he's writing represents a true reality, actuality in the future. So it's not metaphorical. It's not simply allegorical. What I'm trying to say is, when we approach the Word of God, we should interpret a plain understanding of a grammatical, historical context. And as we unpack the 20th chapter of Revelation, it's very helpful to understand the plan of God for the earth, and the plan of God for Satan, and the plan of God for those who are lost without Christ, and the plan of God for the future of all those who receive Jesus as Savior. The theme of chapter 20 of Revelation would be God's reckoning of the world and creation to His holy nature. In other words, we see in the 20th chapter of Revelation, God shows up and says, after a generation of life, after the history of, say, 6,000 years of the world running amok, doing their own thing, doing what is right in their own eyes, rejecting God and rejecting truth and rejecting the Word of God, we see all of a sudden that God says, I'm going to set right on the face of the earth that for history needs to be set right. So many atheists and so many folks who struggle with Christianity say, if God is truly a good God and He's a loving God, then why has He allowed such, such atrocities to happen on the earth? Why can't God step in and change it? Why can't God crush Satan? Why can't He end the evil? Either He must not be truly good as a God, or He, he must be impotent, not all-powerful. Otherwise, He would. And what many people forget is the fact that God has declared, as a good, loving, and all-powerful God, there's a day coming where He will step in once and for all. He will change the face of history. He will end the presence of evil. And He will write. He will bring a reckoning into His holy nature of everything that is broken and decayed and death. Christ will restore to life and healing. And He will bring truth and honor and glory and righteousness where there's only been destruction. That day is yet to come. It is coming. That is our hope. That is the message of Advent. As Christ came as a little baby, so He is coming again to right all the wrongs. So our task in 2011 is to be faithful, to be patient, to be working ever after our calling, which is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with every person, on every culture, 
And all over this world that they would know that God loves them and has a desire for salvation in their life. That is the work that God has called us to in this Thanksgiving and Christmas season. Are we being faithful to that call in our lives? As we hit Revelation chapter 20, we see three major delineations. The first one is that God is reckoning Satan to himself in chapter 20, verses 1. We see in verse 4, the Bible describes Satan, describes what is this reckoning with Satan. Can I, can I just lay out there this morning that whether you believe Satan is a figment of your imagination or some hyper-spiritualized, theolo, you know, theolo, theologized idea to scare people into heaven or scare people into tithing. Listen, the Bible assumes, it doesn't explain Satan's reality. The Bible gives Satan 18 different names. The very Hebrew word Satan means adversary. The word devil means he's a slanderer. He's called the evil one. He's called the great and red dragon in Revelation 12. He's called the old serpent out of, out of Revelation 12, but also in Genesis chapter 3. He's called abaddon in Hebrew, which is destruction. And in Greek, Apollyon, which means destroyer. He's called the roaring lion, the opponent. The Beelzebub, the lord of the flies. Belial, which means worthless. He's also called the god of this world. The ruler of this world. The prince of the power of the air. He's called the enemy. He's called the tempter. He's called the murderer. He's called the accuser of the brethren and the father of all lies. This Satan is assumed in the biblical text is real and alive. Unfortunately, as Christians, we in America have delineated basically Satan as this little figment, right? This idea. Well, what has Satan become in our culture in 2011? He's what we dress up our kids for Halloween. This little Satan costume with a little pitchfork and a little thing and it's cute. Oh, little baby, little baby Satan going door to door. Knock, knock, you know, get some candy, right? I mean, isn't that amazing? If, if Satan's job is to be deceiver of all the nations, look at verse 4. He says, and he's deceiver. He threw him in so he could not deceive the nations any longer. The idea is what? As a deceiver, he wants you to believe that he doesn't exist. That he's not a threat. That he is not real. And the American church has bought hook, line, and seeker the deception. What does the Bible describe about Satan? Well, that he is not only very real, but his purpose is to deceive the masses. To deceive and to destroy the work of God. John 10.10, Jesus says the thief has come to steal to kill and destroy the work of God. That is, that is the heartbeat of the evil one, Satan's power. Number three, Satan is not a co-equal in position or power with God. Again, that's deception at the very work of Satan. Satan wants us to believe that he's equally powerful as Jesus or equally in control as God. But that's not true. He's a creation of God. And as such, must answer to God before he does anything. Look at Job chapter 2. Remember in Luke where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you have no idea how Satan has asked permission to sift you. Here Satan comes to God, and God allows or doesn't allow Satan to do his bidding. For we see that Satan's time on the earth is limited. There's an end for the evil reign. Number five, Satan answers to God because he's a created being. Number six, Satan does not reign or rule over hell. We have this idea in Western Christianity that the Satan with his pitchfork is in charge of hell. Come on down to hell and here Satan's going to reign and rule. But, but Satan is not reigning in hell. Satan is a prisoner of hell. He's thrown there first. And by the way, hell is real. And the Bible says hell was created for Satan. 
This is the realm of the one who has lifted himself up in Ezekiel 38 and Isaiah chapter 14 to say, I am God. I am like God. I will usurp your power, God. I can do all things you can do, God. Look at me. You created me to be this bright, beautiful, angelic being, and I myself can do these things. So we see in Ezekiel 38 and Isaiah 14 this delineation of this typology of Satan who has lifted himself up like God. And because of his pride, was cast out of heaven. And for a season, to deceive the earth, to deceive the nations, the folks would turn their eyes from Christ and God for his glory. Even in the Garden of Eden, we see, has God truly said, Adam, Eve, has God truly said you will not die? Questioning the very foundation of what is truth. We see that hell is created for Satan, the false prophet and the beast. As we read about in Revelation, beat him to it. Number seven is this, that Satan will be judged and punished for eternity. <clears throat> Revelation 20, verses 1-4 through and verse 10 says, There is a place reserved for evil. It is the evil that will be stopped, stomped out, and changed once and forever. But before that time happens, it's interesting, the Bible delineates a season, a thousand year literal reign of Christ on this earth. And why is that? Why would a thousand-year reign even be necessary? Because at this point, if we believe in an all-millennial position, if we hold to a, a position of everything that's kind of symbolic and allegory, where are all the Old Testament promises fulfilled? We see all the promises to Israel particularly, and to the nations given by God that have yet to become fulfilled. So if we let things rest as they are, then we see that either God is a liar or mistaken, or, or, or somehow we've missed it. But if Christ gives a thousand literal reign on the earth, He brings a chance to redeem and restore this earth, to redeem and restore Israel and all the promises to Israel that I don't believe the church can hold necessarily. And I believe that here we have a chance of a thousand year reign. The Bible talks about Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 65. A description of this euphoric, incredible season on the earth for a thousand years where Jesus Christ reigns as God and as King and all the nations worship Him. Imagine this earth, the earth we're literally on for a thousand years, will no longer have the curse of, of sin because Satan is called. He's, he's going to be put away for a thousand years. And it's interesting to see how people and the nations respond when Jesus Christ will literally reign on this earth for a thousand years. And this is before the new heaven. This is before the new earth and before the new Jerusalem next week in chapter 21 as Ron looks at the depths of what the heaven looks like for the future, and what the ultimate heaven that you and I will spend all eternity worshiping God in is different than the thousand-year reign on the earth. In other words, the thousand-year, the millennial kingdom, becomes the culmination of all of redemptive history. So God, before He destroys this earth and creates a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, He sets all things right. And we see... Secondly, that God reckons the faithful martyrs in chapter 20, verse 4. The thrones, the judgment given to those who have been beheaded and killed because they were faithful and they loved God and they loved the Word of God and they held true and they were faithful amidst a generation and a tribulation when no one else would stand to be faithful to God's Word. And they were martyred for their faith. And for those who have died faithfully, God has given them eternal life as reward. He's given them purpose. The Bible says they will work in heaven and they will worship in heaven. They will use their gifts and their, and their passions and their abilities uniquely given to every personality, every human being created for the glory of God to do something in the realm of heaven to give God great honor and glory. And thirdly, we see they get, they get a chance to reign with God. 
And specifically in Revelation 20, we see during that thousand-year reign, we see the tribulation saints as opportune to reign the earth with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Verse 7, the Bible says in Revelation 21, a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations. He's the deceiver, right? And they come together and try one last time to defeat Jesus Christ. It's interesting, again, that John 10.10, here's Christ giving truth to say that Satan's only goal is to still kill and destroy. When we think about the evil one, when we think about truth standing, and how the world has come against the church, and how the world has come against truth, the story doesn't change. No matter what movie you go to see, you have good versus evil. And evil looks different forms, and good takes different forms, but the same plot over and over and over in history. It is basically whether you're Star Wars or it's Lord of the Rings or, or you name a good movie where you have a good plot with a good battling evil, we see again Satan coming against with all the armies of the earth who are trying to, to, to defeat Jesus Christ. And good wins. God wins. Satan is thwarted. Satan eventually will be ultimately defeated. And the glory of the living God will reign on this earth for the thousand years and then for eternity in the new heaven and new earth. Unfortunately, we come to the idea that God reckons Himself with those who are lost as well. Chapter 11, we see a sobering picture. Or chapter, I'm sorry, verse 11 of chapter 20, we see a sobering picture of what the fate of those who choose to openly rebel against God. Verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne, and I saw God who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for the earth. No place for heaven. I saw the dead, those that are great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their deeds, as recorded in the books. Do you see what the word is delineating here? Do you see how God is saying, there's an option for every human on the face of the earth. The Bible talks about judgment happens because of our sin nature. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and Romans 3, 23, and Romans 6, 23 talks about our sin nature as human beings have condemned us as sinful creations, as those who have erred from God, and we are condemned. But the guilt that is associated with our sin comes in the actions, and the deeds recorded record all the actions of our life because though we're sin nature, we're bent towards sin. Now we commit the sins and those sins are recorded as rebellion unto God. Open, active rebellion in the face of a holy, righteous God. And then we're judged not only for our sinful nature and the guilt associated with our actions, we're, we're judged for our unbelief. Hold your place in Revelation and turn back to John chapter 3. And listen to what Jesus declares as Son of God for those who know truth but reject truth. You know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only, unique, begotten Son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, condemned condemnation, but they will have eternal life. Look at verse 18. For whoever believes in Jesus is not judged. But who does not believe, whoever does not believe the sin of unbelief, Christ says they have been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Then look at verse 36 of chapter 3. 
John says, and he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not only not see life, but the wrath of God, judgment of God, rests on him. That is a sobering thought to think at the end of all the ages. The masses, the dead of all those who have ever been created, will rise up to be judged according to their deeds. And not only deeds of things of wickedness and transgressions, but even their righteous deeds, even their good deeds, even the things they've done well, will be lifted up to show that, listen, according to the great glorious holiness of Christ, everything we offer God of our life falls way short of perfection. That we are judged, we are condemned. Hell exists not for humans. It was created for Satan, the one whose pride was cast out. But because of all the rebellious who choose to shake their fist in the face of God, who say, I desire to worship me. I desire to live for me. I desire to go about my way and my will. I want my presence. I reject God. I reject the Word of God. I reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I rebel against this religiosity. And God's ultimate act of love is hell. If you can conceive that God's ultimate expression of love is the existence of hell, and why is that? Because God loves His glory and His nature so much that He cannot allow an openly rebellious, defiant person to come into His holy presence. And this openly rebellious, defiant person who does not desire God and who rejects Christ as Savior, these are they who God lovingly, freely allows them to run after their own heart's desire, which is freedom from God. And that's hell. An eternity of freedom from the presence of God. An eternity separated from the presence of God. God hasn't forced anyone into hell. God is not punishing people and sending them to hell. This is the desire of the openly rebellious, those who choose to reject God's gracious offer of life and salvation. They taste for themselves. They taste for their own will. It is difficult to stomach that hell has to exist. But if God is truly the loving, holy, righteous God that He is, and He cannot tolerate any sin in His presence, then hell will be the only ultimate loving result that's consistent with God's nature for those who openly and freely reject God as the Savior and Redeemer of the earth. We see the books were opened and the deeds were read. The Bible doesn't describe that any Christians are among this group. The Bible says in Romans 8, chapter 1, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation, no more judgment for those who are found in Jesus Christ. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ took our judgment. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate penalty for your life and for my life as justification, as righteousness. And the great exchange of our life, we give up our sinful and nasty, decayed and broken nature and put, heap it on Jesus. And in exchange, God gave us a beautiful new nature and salvation and a glorious eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that we who knew no righteousness will become the very righteousness of God. The great exchange. If hell 
is not real, if hell does not exist, then the cross is a sham. The cross is not needful. The sacrifice of Jesus, the crushing of the Holy Son of God is useless. Points. But God did not choose to look over the sin of the world, but it pleased God to crush His only Son. And His Son received the burden, became a man, despising the shame of that sin that took on the cross, looking toward the glory, for the glory of the Father and for our benefit. As we think about Revelation, as we think about the unveiling of God's incredible, perfect plan, think about Eden. We have an Eden, Adam and Eve, who have an opportunity They have a perfect presence. They have the the perfect conditions, perfect knowledge, the perfect ability and opportunity to respond to a living God. And even in the very presence of a walking relationship with God, Adam and Eve still chose to sin. It's amazing. We see in Revelation chapter 20, at the very end, the Bible says that the devil, who's unreleased, released, verse 7 says, when a thousand years are completed, even in the presence of Jesus Christ as King of the earth, Satan is released. And he will come out to deceive the nations. And they will rebel against God. And God judges them and kills them. Can you imagine in Eden, and in the perfect end book, so to speak, of history, in the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign, when Jesus Christ, and there's no sin, and there's no presence of sin, there's no Satan, even in Eden, and the identification, if you will, the identification of the thousand year reign, sin, and rebellion is not only possible, but it's preferable for the masses. What does it say about our nature? What does it say about our nature that even in Eden, in the thousand year reign, when Satan does not even have the opportunity to tempt, and there's no evil, and we're not living in a cursed land, that people still choose to openly rebel and reject the living God of Savior, Redeemer. Rock Point Church, may this not be so for us, May we be known, those of the church in Flower Bound, Texas in 2011, that take a stand, that we accept Christ, that we love Jesus, that we're running out of the things of God, of the heart of God. The very vision of our church is to get us equipped and sent out to reach the nations that would see and, and then worship the living God. We still have an opportunity to stand in the gap for thousands, perhaps millions of people who are living in an open, rebellious defiance for God. And this morning, I challenge you, I urge you to think about the call of God on your life. Because hell is real. It is sobering. It is disgusting. It should make us weep to think about those who unknowingly reject God, rebel openly against God, and will find themselves situated in a place in the end, getting their own free will of their own presence, of their own self, in God's absence. The text this morning should change us. The text this morning should shake us to the core to get us to realize God has called us to be active, to love Him, and to run to Him, and to stand in the gap for those who need to hear the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ this Thanksgiving and this Christmas season. Mark Twain, famous American author and editor, punchy humor, 
got very dark toward the end of his days, saw very little hope in his condition. And he wrote these words very discouragingly at the end of his life. He said, a myriad of men are born, they labor and they sweat and they struggle, they squabble and scold and fight, they scramble for a little mean advantages over each other. Then age creeps upon them, and then infirmities they follow, and those they love they are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. And then finally, at last, the release comes, death. The only unpoisoned gift the earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. What discouraging words. What a, what a morose thought this morning to think that my life would, would last for 30 or 40 or 80 years on this earth. To be mourned for a day and forgotten for eternity. I point church to challenge you this morning. I challenge you this morning to think about the call of God on your life to be a living, breathing ambassador of the life of Christ. Life in Christ for the world that is watching you. They're watching this church. They're watching you at work. They need to know that God is real and that the Christ is real. And the cross of Jesus Christ means something in this eternity, in this present but also for all eternity. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the next world that they've become so ineffective in this world. What is your response to a world that needs to find Jesus Christ? What is your response this morning to a world that needs to be confronted with God's loving reality that He wants to save their soul, to change that rebellious heart, to draw them into a relationship with Him and give them eternal life, life worth living, life everlasting? Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, my prayer, Lord, my heart, Father, this morning you would work in our midst. Lord, perhaps there's some in this room today that need to know you as Lord and Savior. Father, perhaps there are those in this room that have been playing church and have been coming and are trying to figure out and be confronted with your theology, God, the theology of the cross. And what is heaven, Lord, and what is hell? Are they real? Do they exist? And what do they have to do with me? Father, I pray this morning that every person here would come into a direct confrontation with you to answer the question, what do I do with hell? Lord, if there are any in this service this morning who don't have a personal relationship with you as Lord and Savior, I pray this morning, God, that before they leave this building, God, they would understand they need to repent of their sins, to confess their need for a Savior and to invite Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. To invite Him in. To call upon God to be merciful and gracious. And to radically save and change our lives for His purposes. Father God, I pray that You would do Your work in the power of the Holy Spirit. That if there are any here this morning 
that, God, you would call them to yourself. Lord, for these believers, God, who've been confronted again with a very difficult challenge, God, hell is unpopular. Discourage God, help us this morning to be open and mindful of our co-workers, our family, our neighbors, and those who will see shopping and buying. God, help us to, to see them through the lens of a loving God who desires to save souls. God, I do believe you're still in the business of redemption and restoration. Lord, my life is a living example. Father, help us to have a passion to live the glorious God, the gospel before this world. Lord, we ask these things in the powerful image.